says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And Father, we just ask in this moment that you'd help us to continue now in our worship, that we could continue worshiping in spirit and in truth, and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would just prepare our hearts. And you know what that means for each one of us this day. And we ask now that you would prepare us, and again, as always, that it would be your spirit and his ministry that would speak to us through the word of God and what you've recorded in these passages. So bless your word, we ask expectantly, and speak to us now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is believed that in 1777 that it was Samuel Adams who coined the phrase that we now know, it is important to give credit where credit is due. Important to give credit where credit is due. Of course, it speaks of giving someone proper acknowledgement for their accomplishment, not misplacing our praise for something done well on the wrong person, uh, but instead making sure the person who actually performed or accomplished something is actually given the credit for it. In other words, it is very important to praise the right person. And there is nowhere, certainly, that it is more important to give credit to whom it is due. Nowhere is that more accurate than as it pertains to the Lord himself. He alone deserves the glory. He alone, the Bible teaches clearly, deserves all of the credit for the things that he has done and continues to do in all of our lives. And this is what our text is addressing for us this morning. Again, if you remember, as we've said, the Greek culture which the city of Corinth was very dominated by with its love for philosophers and great thinkers, with its fascination with powerful orators who could fill up stadiums and captivate crowds with their messages, as well as their fanaticism over sporting events. They were quite the sports culture like our American culture. They had second after the Olympic Games, what was called the Ithmian Games, that took place there in Corinth, uh, where great athletes would come together and participate, and they'd fill stadiums, as well as the fact uh, that they had a tremendous desire as a people in the Greek culture to aspire towards wealth and power and influence because they wanted so desperately to be like the Greek gods that they admired and they worshipped. So because of that, these things were highly esteemed. Well, that bred an atmosphere of kind of being overly impressed, if you would, with people who were influential, with those who were very gifted, with those who were powerful and important. And what began to happen is the value system of the world and the Greek culture of that time was beginning to now strongly influence the value system of God's people. And really what was starting to happen was kind of the ideals of the world were just kind of becoming synonymous and very similar to the ideals of the church. 
and God's people within the church were starting to basically embrace the same morals, the same value system and perspectives as those who were living in the outside world. And there was very little distinction among them. They had in the world their great heroes and champions and those who were fans of such things. And in connection to that, the church was kind of becoming much like that. If you remember, we saw in chapter 1, they were picking out their favorites among the speakers and different leaders, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas and so forth. Well, unfortunately, the ungodly system of the world having such a strong influence on the church was becoming a problem that was causing a detriment to the health of the church. And God saw this, and Paul the Apostle saw this, and because of that, this needed to be addressed to keep the church healthy. And so because of that, we find Paul addressing the next things that he does here in this letter in chapter 1. Again, look with me back as he begins in verse 26, saying to them, for you see your calling, brethren, he says, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble are called. So he reminds the believers here in the church to reflect upon really their condition in which they were in when God invited them to become a part of his glorious eternal family. You notice again there in verse 26, Paul uses the term brethren, or we might say brothers, the idea, again, there is that's a family term, brothers or sisters. He's speaking of how they were brothers and sisters spiritually through their marriage relationship with Jesus Christ that had now made God the Father their father amongst them as a spiritual and eternal family. They had become a part of God's eternal family. And he says to them in verse 26, you see or you're aware of the idea is your calling. Now, that term calling there is language to indicate how they were called into the spiritual status that they were currently in at this time presently. They were invited into, they didn't automatically arrive at, they were invited into or brought into their current spiritual condition by a work of God. In fact, remember back at the beginning of the chapter and Verse uh, 9 of chapter 1, we saw the same language. He said there, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship or relationship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, the Bible teaches that we, each one of us as human beings, descending from Adam, who lost his relationship with God in the Garden of Eden because of sin and rebellion, being sinful by nature and spiritually dead from birth, because that's what we've all inherited, no matter who we are, we've all inherited the same thing from our first parent, Adam. And as a result of that, we are all born sinful by nature and really separated from God spiritually. In other words, the Bible teaches, contrary to what the world tells us, the Bible, God's word teaches, that relationship with God is something we do not begin life with. That we start out life separated from God spiritually and disconnected from a relationship with God because of our sinful nature from birth and the fact that Adam lost relationship with God and we as well lack the same. Look, that is why, first of all, children don't have to be taught how to misbehave, right? This is the parent service. Have you ever said, listen, let me tell you, Johnny, how to tell a really slick lie. Let me tell you how to be really disrespectful to your mom. Let me tell you how to be selfish with your friends. We don't have to do that. They automatically know that. Now, maybe they just have good genes from you. I don't know. 
but they're naturally inclined to do what's wrong because what? They're sinful from birth. It's, it's what's wired in all of us. That's also the reason why that we find ourselves always searching for something from very early on in life because we're broken inside and we're missing relationship with God and God's put this void in us and that causes us to search and search to try and fill that void until we find that it's a relationship with God that we're lacking. So again, we don't start out life in relationship with God, but God's kindly made a way for us through the sinless life of Jesus Christ who sacrificially died on the cross in our place for our sins and then rose from the dead to be restored into a relationship with God if we're willing to believe upon and receive what Jesus has done for us to resolve that problem between us and holy God. He's made a way freely available, and he reaches out to us. He initiates. He's made the way possible now freely through his son. He invites us to come, to believe, to receive his free gift. So we hear the call, if you would. We hear the phone ringing spiritually, but then we have an option. Do we hit decline or do we hit receive? God puts out to his call, but we have a choice whether we're going to respond rightly by believing and receiving. That's why the Bible refers to Christians, as we see here in verse 26, as those who are called or your calling. That's the idea is we are a people who have answered God's calling. We've answered God's call to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul asked those in the church there who currently made up the population of the church at Corinth to consider where they were in their life. He says, when you receive that calling, he's saying, think about it. You see your calling. What condition were you in? He says, when God reached out to you, that's what he's getting to here. One translation renders this. Remember, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. He's encouraging them to look among themselves there in the church and who the church is currently made up of. And look what he says in verse 26. He says, there were not many wise among them according to the flesh. In other words, there were not many at the church of Corinth who were great intellectuals, who were all the geniuses and brilliant people in the society. It wasn't a large group of the wisest and smartest people that made up the congregation. He says as well there in verse 26, there were not many mighty among them who were called. That is, there were not many among the church of Corinth who were the influential movers and shakers in society, the powerful people. It was not all folks in the congregation made up of high position and rank, all those who were the most successful, if you would, in the society of that day. He says thirdly as well, there were not many, verse 26, among them who were noble. And the idea there, noble, the language literally speaks of, of high birth or royalty. And so the idea there is Paul saying, look amongst you. There's not a whole lot of people among the congregation who are of high importance, royalty, great rank. You know, was, you know, the church wasn't made up of the rich and the famous and the prominent people of the day. The church was mainly made up of those who were pretty common and ordinary people. Just everyday folks, if you would. In fact, many of them were, he's going to go on to say, kind of weak and pretty insignificant. Just general Joes and ordinary, you know, everyday people. Just typical individuals, nothing special or spectacular. In fact, even many among them were poor and those who were looked down upon. Now, take notice in verse 26, pay attention. He doesn't say that there was not any intelligent, not any 
powerful, not any important, wealthy, or successful people. And again, certainly, there's nothing wrong with being very intelligent, nothing wrong with being a successful person, a wealthy person, a powerful, influential person. Those things are from God. That doesn't preclude someone from having a relationship with the Lord. Thankfully, God does save some who are super intelligent. Thankfully, God does save some who are powerful and influential and rich and those who are movers and shakers in society and and then even uses some of them in very powerful ways think of who's just passed robbie zacharias genius i remember hearing him a you know a few months after i first got saved in an auditorium speaking as a you know a, a freshman in college in that first year and just listening to this man speaking i'm thinking this guy is brilliant I mean, his ability to debate and speak about the claims of Scripture and and make fools of people who didn't know God that were also very intelligent like him. And thankfully, God saved somebody like a Ravi Zacharias who with great intelligence could really connect with people also who were very intelligent and, and help them to see logic and reason and still love God and that God was real. And so thankfully, it doesn't say not any like this get saved and that god doesn't use any like this the bible just says not many not many and again that would make sense because many a times the powerful the important the wealthy the successful even sometimes the highly intelligent it's a stumbling block for them unfortunately to have those things and still come into a relationship with the lord remember it wasn't me jesus said god jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of god I mean, that just makes sense logically if you think about it. If you have tremendous wealth and resources, whenever you have a problem, you just write a check. You can buy your way and pay your way through a whole lot of things when you got a lot of money. And when you're very wealthy, you can kind of look around, well, what do I need anything or anybody for? I can take care of myself. I mean, it just makes sense logically. And so sometimes those who are wealthy or influential or powerful or super smart, and we may you know, kind of, oh, I wish I could be them. Well, Jesus says sometimes they're at a disadvantage. Sometimes it's harder for them to see their need for God. It's harder for them to be humble and childlike in faith because it can actually be a stumbling block sometimes in their life. And, you know, the same is true to this day. The major population of the church, by and large, is not made up of elite superstars. Look around you this morning. It's not made up of all the rich and the famous and the influential It's simply usually a group of people who realize they need God and they depend upon God and they're not ashamed to acknowledge that they need help from God. And it's a reminder to us as well, these very things, that God does not value or seek people dependent upon what they have or how rich they are or how strong or intelligent. I know this is a real heartbreaker to some people, but I've learned over the years, God really isn't impressed with people. Now we are. But I, it's just, it's hard to really impress him. When you're God, it's hard to impress him. And we need to always remember that, that God doesn't look down upon anyone, but God also never would look up to someone and be impressed by him. He sees the value of a person's soul and that each person is valuable and significant and on level ground before him as creator God. Verse 27, he goes on to say, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. 
So notice here the Holy Spirit indicates that God purposely allowed for his church to become assembled and exist in this way. It actually was by design to display the wisdom and power of God. We get an explanation in verse 27 and 28 of how God often exercises his picking and his choosing, if you would, and why he chooses to make such people a part of his eternal family. You notice we read repeatedly there at least three times for emphasis that statement, God has chosen. God has chosen. And it's there for emphasis to say this is how God picks or decides. God selects people purposely with a specific reason in mind, particularly things like to reduce the pride of man and to let every man realize their need of humility before God. At times to show that God does not look at things or people the same way that human beings do, but he looks at things much differently. To show that God, as I said, values every soul equally. And that God's value system, period, is not the same as the views of mankind. And that no life is insignificant. He says there in the beginning of verse 27, God has chosen purposely, he says, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. That is, God has chosen and selects not necessarily, as I said, the smartest, the most educated, with the greatest amount of experience. Instead, God at times will select the opposite so that through their lack of knowledge, through their insufficiency or lack of intellect or great education or whatever it may be, that God can purposely show his power through their life in a way that it's evident that it has got to be God and got to be God's power because that person lacks the resources for it to actually be of them. And he says he does this to actually put the shame the smartest of people so that they scratch their head. How in the world is that guy able to be used by God like that? How in the world is God working? And the reality is it must be God to allow people to recognize that. Sometimes as well, God may choose the foolish things in the sense that he may work through something that seems so seemingly simplistic or let's say so unsophisticated, something that seems so raw and basic, perhaps it may even be perceived as something foolish and yet God uses that simple, foolish thing, which looks like it would be so ineffective, and he puts his spirit's blessing upon it, and it ends up being something incredibly successful in the end result. You know, to put to shame those who are maybe out there using every clever idea and clever program, and then they scratch their heads saying, how is it that we have all this? I mean, and we have done all these things, and that's what works? Are you kidding me? That's what actually works? I think of in the Old Testament, the story of Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy, and he wanted to be healed of his leprosy, and it was told him that he could be healed by Yahweh God, and so he travels all the way to Israel. He brings all this money and all his great caravan with him, and he goes, and they say, you need to go see Elijah the prophet. So he goes to Elijah the prophet, and he's thinking, all right, he's the man. He's the great healer. I'm going to go see him. And when he arrives close to the prophet's house, the prophet sends out a servant and tells him, look, just go dip in the Jordan seven times, and you'll be healed. And it says that he gets furious. And he's saying, wait a minute. Are you kidding me? He doesn't even have, Does he know who I am? I'm the commander of the Syrian army, and he sends a servant out here to greet me? He doesn't even send somebody out with some green M&Ms or something? I mean, this is ridiculous. 
and go dip in the dirty Jordan River? Aren't there the Farpar and these other beautiful rivers where I come from in Syria? And he wants me to go dip in that filthy Jordan River to be healed? And what was God doing? God was using the most foolish, basic, simplistic way to humble and to heal this man. And, and ultimately, somebody said to him, look, Commander, uh, if he told you to do something great like scale a mountain or give him $7.5 million, you probably would have done it, right? Well, of course. Well, what do you have to lose to go and dip in the Jordan? Seven, and I imagine as he went to the Jordan, I, just picturing that he probably did something like this. Stupid, this is stuck in between us. And I mean, to get the seven must come on, you can do it. Two more. And then the seventh time he goes down and bam, he's healed. And he has nothing to recognize other than this wasn't about the met. This was all God. It was completely the power of God. And sometimes God will use the foolish things of this world to shame even the mightiest and the strongest. He says that in verse 27 there, that God uses, it says, the chosen, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, to astonish and confound the strong. Sometimes God uses the weakest of people who have no resources, no strength, no capability. I mean, you see this all throughout the scriptures. You read the Bible, do we not? God selecting for his servants, people like Moses to be his spokesman. And what was Moses' problem? I got a speech impediment. There's, a, there's an inconsistency there, God. Perfect. You have a speech impediment. Who made your mouth? I'll use your mouth. God chooses young David. His own family didn't even invite him to the family dinner. They come to his house. You're one of your sons to be the next king of Israel. He brings all of his sons in, except David. For God, he had one more son. They go through all the sons, can't find one. I just, man, none of these. Hey, we do got one weak, you know, kind of run. He's out in the field, I mean, but couldn't be. Could be. Because God likes to take the weak and the insignificant and show himself mighty through them. You see the same thing with Gideon and Jeremiah and Peter. Can you imagine Peter trying to give his resume to be in ministry today? Uh, Peter, you're interested in being a pastor of a church? Yeah, how long have you been saved? few years at the most so uh what's your background uh fisherman uh no rabbinical training uh you, no bible school well no so how you been doing your walk with the lord well i just denied him three times and called down curses and the other day and one time he told me get thee behind me satan but but i'm willing i'm willing and what happens peter becomes one of those powerful individuals in the early church but it was all the power of God. Verse 28, he also says there that God also chooses the base things, that is, those without any family. That's what the language is there. Those who are castaways with no family, no friends. That refers to those who have no belonging to anybody. They feel like castoffs, like they've been rejected, abandoned, totally lonely. They're longing for acceptance. And look, these are the people that God is attracted to and wants to make a part of his eternal family because he wants those people to have a spiritual family. He wants those people to have a sense of belonging in the family of God. He says he chooses those things which are despised, that is, looked down upon with disgust. Those who others would see as just worthless, disgusting people, God views them as having value and purpose. 
having incredible meaning to their life. Others may despise you. Others may even look down upon you. You may even have a major you know, inferiority complex about yourself. But look, God looks at you and he says, you're worth my investment. I don't care what you think of yourself or what others think about you. It says God chooses those things and people notice also, verse 28, which are nothing that is completely insignificant. The nobodies. Those who other people would say that person has nothing of value in their life, whether, again, because they feel that way about themselves or others have made them feel like they're nothing or like they're an absolute nobody. God takes what appears to be nothing and he actually makes it into something. He's a master at doing that. And it says the reason that God chooses the lowly, despise the nobodies is to humble those who actually think that they are something. To actually show to others the way that he operates. Again, God would be horrible if you put him like in a general manager position for the NBA draft or something like that. Because he would draft the worst people. Give us a superstar, next franchise team. And he would say, okay, let me see. 5'6", 139 pounds, give me Anthony Montemiro for center. <laughs> you know what I mean, like that's the kind of stuff that God would do. Because he says, I'm going to show my power through the process. Well, why does God work in such ways? Look at verse 29. That, here's the reason, that no flesh should glory in his presence, so that nobody would ever have right or reason to boast in the presence of God. He purposely does it so nobody could say, this was my great plan, or that was your great idea. The truth is, God kindly overlooks all of our flaws, all of our limitations, Because he deserves all the credit, and no boasting should ever be going to anyone but him in the end. Look, that applies, first of all, to salvation. The Bible tells us regarding salvation, we're saved by grace, through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is not of works. It's the gift of God. And it even says at the end, so that no one can boast. One of the things I'm looking forward to heaven, no one will ever boast again. Around the throne of God, you, it just, you won't be able to. You won't be able to boast on Twitter. You won't be able to boast on media. You can't boast. All you can do is say, the only reason I'm here is the grace of God. Only reason I made it here. Only reason at all. And see, the same applies again to how God works through people in service. Again, read the story of Gideon. When God uses Gideon, this weak and insignificant man, and then he starts out with an army. And what does God do? God keeps saying, your army's too big. Too big? It's already smaller than theirs. Right, but it's still too big because the people will claim credit for themselves if you win the battle. And God shrinks his army, shrinks his army, shrinks his army. Maybe you're saying, it sounds like my bank account. Shrinking it and shrinking. God says, wait, I got to make it a little smaller. Then I'm going to take care of everything for you. But sometimes God will actually do this. He will actually work in a way where he creates the worst odds possible to actually show the greatest measure of his power so he can work in a powerful way. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 30 to address more of why God the Father and the Son deserve all the glory. Look what he says. But of him, that's of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, when he says of him, or the idea is from him, the idea is from God the Father, his love, his power and his work, that's how you got into a relationship with Christ Jesus. Again, our salvation and current relationship with Christ is totally a work of God that took place in our life. 
you know, Titus 3 speaks about this reality. I encourage you to read and evaluate. It says, look, we were once foolish and disobedient and lost, but when the kindness of God and our Savior came upon us, we were washed and saved and regenerated. Again, the idea is so that all the credit goes to God, that he's the one that brought us into this relationship. And Paul mentions in our verse here a few of the benefits that we've received in our relationship now with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says. He says, Christ has become for us. And then he mentions four things. He says, he's become for us wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. I don't know about you, but my human wisdom to make healthy life decisions, I found is very flawed. It's very limited. It's very, you know, insufficient. Yet through a connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to receive supernatural wisdom from God. That it doesn't matter how uneducated or how foolish or whatever you may be, supernatural wisdom from God can be given to you spiritually through a relationship and walk with the Son, Jesus Christ. How wonderful to have the wisdom of God to navigate challenging situations in our world. He says from Jesus, he also became for us, secondly, our righteousness. That is Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of God for access into heaven. His life satisfies that. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as savior, he gives to us his righteousness. So now I have a righteous standing before God, though I'm a sinful man and who I am. And though I have many flaws in my past and like you, we still have present struggles positionally God sees you as righteous in Christ and he deals with you because of the righteousness of Jesus not according to your past mistakes or your present performance on top of that he shows us the righteous way to live so we can experience God's best he also became for us thirdly sanctification that is to be set apart for special purpose made whole or holy again Jesus has set us apart to make us ready for heaven to make us a child of God, set us apart for the eternal kingdom. And our lives are set apart now from this corrupting world system that we still live in temporarily, but yet we can see clearly that our citizenship is in heaven and we have a new way to live our life as we're living now in this fallen world system because we've been set apart to see the way that God would have us to live. And more than that, sanctification is happening in the sense that He's constantly in the process of sanctifying or setting apart our lives spiritually. The idea there is there's an ongoing process in mind in your life as we walk with Jesus, as the Holy Spirit is making me different and making me more like Christ. And he's setting me further and further apart from who I am naturally and supernaturally making me more like Jesus as he's continuing to work in my life as I walk with the Lord. And fourthly, he says, if that weren't enough, Jesus has also become for us our redemption. Now, in a society where there were many slaves, that resonated incredibly. Because redemption, understand, is the process of making a necessary payment to liberate a slave from that status. To pay a price to give them their personal freedom from enslavement. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Through his sinless life, his sacrificial death and resurrection, his shed blood has paid our redemption price. He's redeemed us to set us free from enslavement to sin and to Satan that once enslaved our lives. Jesus has set us free and liberated us 
so that we can live differently. And not only has he redeemed and given redemption to our spirit internally, but one day he's going to finish the redemption process as he redeems our physical fallen sinful bodies. Our spirit is already redeemed, but one day the final redemption is the redemption of the body where one day Jesus will liberate us from this body that we struggle with temptation and wrestle with because of sin and and evil within us. And one day Jesus is going to set us free from this fallen, weak, sinful body. It's plagued with health issues and struggles and things that trouble us and hassle us and one day redemption, deliverance from the body, brand new glorified eternal body. Look, that is why Paul concludes in verse 31 saying, that's why it's written. He quotes a principle from Jeremiah 9. He who glories or boasts, let him glory or boast in the Lord. There's no other thing to do. He recalls what scripture declares as a principle. Jeremiah 9 says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong boast in their strength or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord. Hey, let us learn to properly give credit where credit is due. You know, this morning, do you find enjoyment in worshiping and praising God? You really should. You really, really should. In fact, actually, that's the one thing we were created for doing. We were created to glorify God. I can't tell you everything else you were created for, but one thing I tell you God created you for was to glorify him, is to worship him now and eternally. So let's take a moment to put into practice giving glory and credit where it's due. Let's stand together.